We often talk about the Corinthians and all the problems that they had. We talk about the division that they faced and the error that had been taught there and the number of times that Paul had to rebuke them. And yet, recently I've reread a passage and discovered that for all of the things that Paul said to rebuke the Corinthians, he actually was still able to find something about which to compliment them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. Here the Bible says, in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The Corinthians excelled. They excelled at several things. In this verse, we find a great goal for us. Excellence is what we should be striving for. And Paul said to the Corinthians, as you excel in everything, excel in this also. We need to be looking for excellence. But not just excellence in general. We need to be looking for excellence in the things mentioned in this verse. This morning, let's examine this and learn about excellence and learn what we need to excel at. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious and almighty and excellent Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you because you are excellent, you are majestic, you're powerful, and we honor you. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you have loved us and sent your Son to die for us. We praise your name and we lift you up in our worship this morning. We ask that you would be with us and help us to excel. Help us to excel at faith at speech and knowledge and earnestness and love and in grace. Help us to excel at our service, to be diligent, to abound so that we might be your faithful workmen who don't need to be ashamed. Father, forgive us because we have not always excelled. We have accepted mediocrity at times. We've sought after what was good enough. Help us to look beyond that, to glorify and praise you. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. As you consider this verse, the very first thing that we need to talk about is excelling. What does it mean to excel? When I looked up the word excel, there was one comment that kept being seen over and over again. The first definition in some dictionaries, it said that to excel meant to super abound. Not just to abound, but to abound superly, if you will. I mean, that's just an overabundance. So when we're excelling at something, that means that we just have so much of it. It's just an overabundance. He says, as you excel in everything, as you overabound, as you superly abound in these things. And so when we consider that concept, when we look at excellence, there are three things that we need to remember. First of all, excellence is not meeting minimum requirements but exceeding expectations. Look at how the word is used in Luke chapter 15 and verse 17. In Luke chapter 15 and verse 17, the prodigal son is away from his father. He's eating the swine's food. And he comes to himself in Luke 15, 17. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? You have the New King James. I believe it says has bread and enough 
to spare. That's that same word for excel. More than enough. Enough and to spare. It's not just enough. It's not drawing a line and finding a minimum requirement. It's exceeding expectations. It's going way beyond what anyone might expect that we're supposed to have. That's excelling. Aristotle said that excellence is not an act, but a habit. Paul agreed with him if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Abounding. That's our word for excel right there. And notice how often Paul says we're to abound. Always abounding. If we abound, if we excel only once, then we're not excelling. If we excel only occasionally when the mood strikes us, then we're not excelling. We are to always abound. Excellence is not an act. It is a habit. And finally, excellence is not a goal. It's a continual pursuit. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. Noticing how the, the, writers, the translators translated this word here. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, the English Standard Version says. And in verse 10, it says with the same words, in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 4, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. The same word is translated there, the word for excellence. You see, excellence, excelling, doesn't mean accomplishing a goal and staying there. Excellence means always pushing to the next level. Never being satisfied with where we are, but moving forward and doing it more and more. So excellence is not a goal. It is a continual pursuit. We've got to remember this. So these six things that we're going to talk about very briefly this morning, when we talk about excelling in them, we need to understand there's no minimum requirement. We need to understand we're not talking about an action, we're talking about a habit, and we need to understand we're not talking about a goal, but a continual pursuit of doing more and more of the six things that Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. The first thing, he says we need to excel in faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 defines faith for us. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith, the Scripture says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 demonstrates that faith is the foundation. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge. Faith is the foundation upon which we build as children of God. What we learn from this is that without faith, we could not even be children of God, but we're striving for excellence in faith. We must not be satisfied with the level of faith that we have right now, but rather we're wanting to move on to the next level, having more and more faith, excelling therein. I'd like to share with you two keys that will help us excel in our faith. You know where I'm going next. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. 
Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. We'll remember what Paul wrote about how we can grow in our faith. He pointed out, so then faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. If we want to grow in our faith, we've got to get in the Word of God. Don't get into chicken soup for the soul. Don't get into devotional books written by men. Those are good and they have their place. But if you really want to increase your faith, you need to be getting into the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, when the Hebrew writer wanted to convince the Hebrews to increase their faith, do you remember what he told them? He talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and all the prophets. What did he tell them about? He told them about the stories that we can read about in the Bible. If we want to increase our faith, we need to get into those Bible stories. We need to study them. We need to learn them. We need to live them. And our faith will excel. But the second thing that we need to do Look in Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, we remember the story. The apostles were out on the water. It was storming. They saw what they thought was a ghost. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. It's me. And Peter said, if it's you, command me to come out there with you. And Jesus said, come on. And so Peter got out on the water and he walked with him. And I know that he struggled, and I know that he sank, and I know that he cried out to Jesus, and Jesus rebuked him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But let me ask you, do you think that this experience increased Peter's faith or decreased it? I imagine that walking on the water with Jesus increased his faith. If we want to increase our faith, brethren, we've got to get out of the boat. Don't wait until you have enough faith to do the things that you are uncomfortable with. Start doing those things that make you uncomfortable and just put your hand in Jesus and let Him guide you. If you stumble, cry out to Him. But get out of the boat. Do the things that make you uncomfortable that, that mean serving the Lord. And watch as your faith begins to excel because you're relying on God. Paul said, as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 33, demonstrates to us why our speech is so important. Matthew chapter 12 and beginning in verse 33, the Bible says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, verse 36, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We are going to be judged based upon our words. That sounds pretty important to me. It's important because the words that we speak demonstrate what's in our hearts. They expose to the world what we're thinking. I'd like to share with you three principles. We could talk about the tongue, you know, for hours. But I'd like to share with you three principles that will help us excel in speech. Number one, speak sparingly. James chapter 1 and verse 19, we've all got that one memorized. We must be quick to hear slow to speak. So many sins of the mouth 
would be overcome if we would just learn to keep it shut. Principle number one, speak sparingly. Principle number two, always speak in submission to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. We use Colossians 3.17 a lot. We use it when we're talking about what churches are supposed to do. And we hone in on it. It says that, that everything we do must be done in the name of Jesus. But have you noticed in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Everything that we speak, we ought to be able to say that this is done in the name of Jesus. Now, I am not saying that we have to preface our every statement with the words, in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm just pointing out that everything we say, we ought to be able to say that I've done that with the authority of Jesus. I've said that with the authority of Jesus. Jesus is all right with me saying this. Principle number three. Ephesians 4.29, Ephesians 4.29, principle number three, speak to build up, not tear down. Ephesians 4 and verse 29 says to us, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as is fit for the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupt word come out of our mouth, whether we're talking about lies, gossip, slander, uh, cussing, dirty jokes, filthy talk, godless, irreverent, blasphemous speech. No corrupting speech should come out of our mouth. Hypocritical, hypercritical judgments, none of those things should be spoken by us. Rather, our words are to be a gift to other people. When we speak, we need to be asking ourselves, when I'm done with this conversation, is this person going to be better off or worse off? Are they going to be lifted up and built up and encouraged to go on in the grace of the Lord? Or are they going to be torn down and discouraged? Even when we have to rebuke, even when we have to chase, which we will have to do, we need to strive to do it in a way, in a, in a constructive way, that builds up and doesn't tear down. If we're going to excel in speech, we need to learn to speak sparingly. We need to learn to always speak in submission to the Lord. And we need to learn to speak in a manner that builds up and doesn't tear down. He says, as you excel in everything, as you excel in faith, as you excel in speech, as you excel in, as you excel in knowledge. Knowledge. We live in a day and age that does not value knowledge enough. Even among Christians and in churches. We need to remember that 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, as it talks about growing as a Christian, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge. We need to have faith. We need to have virtue or moral excellence. But if we're going to have those things, we've got to be increasing in knowledge. I agree that we need lessons that deepen our devotion. Those, those emotional lessons that just, that just bring us on the edge of our seat and just cause us to just want to love God all that we can. We need those lessons that cut through everything that's written and just tell us, here's how you're supposed to live. We need those lessons that, that give us the takeaway, that help us with the application, that help us to be more Christ-like every day. But if we forget the fact that we just need more knowledge of God's Word, then our deeper devotion is doomed to uselessness. Our pure lives will not accomplish what we want. Do you remember Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6? 
My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Look in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 2. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, Paul, talking about the Jews, said, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Brethren, it is possible for us to have greater zeal. It is possible for us to have deeper devotion. It is possible for us to look more Christ-like than ever and yet not have the knowledge that makes it worth anything. If we neglect knowledge, it'll be like the chink in the dam that eventually causes it to crack and break apart and will flood our lives. We need to have knowledge. And that means that we're going to have lessons sometimes that that we walk away. Well, what was the takeaway from that? Well, the takeaway was that we learned something. We know more about what God's Word says. That means that we need to teach our kids those songs that, that just teach them things like the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah and the tribes of Israel and those kind of things, the apostles. We need to just know. We need to excel at knowledge. We need to have knowledge enough and to spare. Yes, we must not so focus on knowledge as to become puffed up as 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 warns us. But we need to remember what Romans chapter 15 and verse 14 says. Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, Paul said to the Christians in Rome, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, verse 14 of Romans 15, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. As I talk with churches and Christians all over, I'm beginning to get a sense of concern. Because I'll tell you what, we have learned to be compassionate. We are filled with compassion. We have increased our desire to want to be there for one another, to help one another. We've got that. But all too often i found Christians that want to help others, but they don't know how because they don't know the help that God has in His Word. And we can say and we ought to say, I'll pray for you. But when it comes to being able to actually say, here's what you need to do or here's what God has done, We lack in that way too often. Hebrews 10 and verse 24 says we're supposed to be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. The only way we can do that, brethren, is if we're excelling at knowledge. Paul said as you excel in faith, as you excel in speech, as you excel in knowledge, as you excel in all earnestness. This is an interesting one in my opinion. The earnestness, or perhaps your translation says diligence, Without this particular characteristic, we won't have excellence in any of the characteristics. Earnestness is the practical key that unlocks the door to excellence. Excellence is the prize. Earnestness is the day-to-day discipline and drive to achieve that excellence. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. We, we know it. We've heard it all, all our lives. Study to show yourself approved unto God. And so many of us have made the mistake to think that that word study meant read your Bibles. Some translations have come out and they pointed out that that actually means be diligent. This translation says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has, not, has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth is where we should get Bible study from this passage, brethren. 
But that first statement, be diligent, be earnest. Do your best. That's earnestness. Earnestness is the idea of hastening towards something. Earnestness is the idea of striving to accomplish something. Earnestness is the idea of I'm pursuing with all my might. I'm doing the best I can possibly do, and tomorrow I'm going to try to do better. That's earnestness. And that is what it takes to be unashamed before God. Diligence. Earnestness. Doing my best. Always abounding. Excelling at earnestness will cause us to excel at other things. Paul had already complimented the Corinthians regarding their earnestness. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11, we'll remember, as you're turning there, that in, chapter, in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had to rebuke them because they had tolerated sin in the camp. They had a man who was committing fornication with what appears to be his stepmother. And Paul had to rebuke them. Now, if he writes the second letter, he compliments them. He commends them. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Did you notice some of those other words that were coupled along with earnestness? With what eagerness? With what longing? With what zeal? This is what it means to be earnest. To have that eagerness, that longing, that zeal for all of these things. Brethren, I know that we desire a deeper faith. I know that we want better speech. I know that we want greater knowledge. I know that we want stronger love. I know that we want wider grace. But we won't have any of that if we don't excel at earnestness and diligence. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 demonstrated the importance. In 2 Peter chapter 1, when it talks about the fact that we need to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and, and on the list goes, notice what it says. For this very reason, make every effort. That's our word for earnestness. Yours may say diligence. Be diligent. If we're going to add to our faith virtue and to our virtue knowledge and to our knowledge self-control and to our self-control godliness and to our godliness uh, patience and, uh, and, and brotherly kindness and love, if we're going to do that, it's going to take earnestness. It's going to take diligence. It's going to take giving it our best. We need to have earnestness and to spare. He says, as you excel in your faith, as you excel in your speech, as you excel in your knowledge, as you excel in earnestness, as you excel in our love for you. This is the English Standard Version. And it seems to be a little bit confusing. Many of the translations say, in your love for us. See, there seems to be a little question about some of the manuscripts. I think the New American Standard provides us a translation that gives us a bridge between those two ideas. It says, as you excel in the love we have inspired in you. In other words, the, the love that we had for you, the love that we taught you. I think is the concept here. But whatever textual issues we might have with this verse, and, and I encourage you to go study that on your own sometime. Whatever, we, well, whatever textual struggles and issues we have with this verse, I think we can all see that Paul wanted the Corinthians, and he wants us, to excel in love. And that's not surprising. Paul pointed out in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 that the aim of our charge is love, that issues from a good heart, a pure, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's, that's the aim of everything we're doing, is love. Everything as Christians and as a church that we strive to accomplish is in order to accomplish those two greatest commands that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 37. 
We know the passage where he was asked, what's the greatest command in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what we are to excel in. Loving God, loving others. As we love others, we become more like God. Remember what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, around verse 40, as, as Jesus pointed out that when we love our enemies, we will be sons of our Father who is in heaven. And as we learn to love God, we open ourselves up to the promises that God has for us. If you look in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28, In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28, Paul wrote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. But where did that begin? Where did the reception of those promises begin? It began with us loving God. Let us not love God halfway. Let us not love God in word and in talk, but in deed and in truth. We must love God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we know, verses 4 through 7, defines love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Beginning at verse 4, we won't talk about it long. We've, we've read this over and over again, but we'll just read it again today to remind us. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is love. And this is where we need to excel. He says... As you excel in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and in love, see that you also excel in this act of grace. Within the context of this particular verse, we're actually finally getting to what Paul's main thrust was. He had been talking to them about the famine that was going on in Judah, and the Corinthians, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, had made a promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. They had promised to help out. And this is the grace he's talking about. He's not talking about God's saving grace here. He's talking about the grace that we would have toward others using the blessings in our lives from God in order to be a grace to others. He says, excel in this grace. Excel in bestowing blessings from your physical goods upon others. And we have to ask ourselves, how do I excel in this grace? Do I excel in this grace? I need to be offering this grace and to spare. We can do this in two ways. Number one, how am I excelling at grace on a person-to-person level. In Hebrews chapter 13, I believe it's about verse 16. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We need to do good and share with what we have. Are we excelling in that? 
Could Paul possibly look at us and say, you are excelling in your sharing, in your hospitality, in your generosity? Or would we look like hoarders that are cutting ourselves off from people? We won't allow them into our homes and, and show hospitality and share with them the goods with which God has blessed us. There's not only that person-to-person level, there's also the congregational level. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in 2 Corinthians 8 with the Corinthians as he's talking to them about the contribution that they've decided to make to the congregation that will then go on to help the Judeans that are in need. I want you to think about this. According to Wikipedia, Williamson County is in the top 1% of United States counties regarding wealth and regarding income per capita. The top 1% of the wealthiest nation in the world, that's where we live. Just think about that for a moment. And what does that say about the grace we as a congregation ought to be offering? What does that say about us as individual members who live here and are participating in those blessings? The grace that we ought to be offering in our contribution. How much grace could we offer through the spread of the gospel? Think about how much grace we could offer to the world by, by purchase of Bibles and materials that would draw people to Jesus. The grace that we might offer through having a presence in the newspaper, on the radio, on television. The grace that we might ha- have to offer by supporting local evangelism and by supporting evangelism in foreign fields. But brethren, do you realize that we're doing hardly any of that? Because we can't afford it even though we live in the top 1% county in the nation, in the wealthiest nation of the world. Think about the grace that we ought to be able to offer to our brethren in need the world over. You know, I've heard reports about brethren in South Africa and in Zimbabwe who mix gravel with corn mush so that their kids will feel full. Think about the grace we ought to be able to offer them, perhaps instead of eating our second helping at the potluck. What grace are we to offer? Can we look at that and say that, yes, we are excelling in grace the way we're excelling at these other things? This is a sticking point for the Corinthians. This is often the sticking point for us. I want you to notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As he continues on, he gets to verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus was in heaven, had all the riches of the universe, and He gave that up in order to bestow grace upon us. Why are we so afraid that we might end up being poor, that we hang on to the blessings God has given us instead of demonstrating grace to others? And before we start saying, now, Edwin, that's not fair. You know, we've got to put food on our table. We've got to put clothes on our back. Brethren, look around us. I bet there's not one person in this auditorium this morning who has struggled because of a lack of blessing from God. Yes, we've struggled because we haven't managed God's blessings well. I'm sure a lot of us are doing that. There's not a single one of us in this auditorium that can sit back and say, you know what, I have struggled because God hasn't blessed me with enough food and enough clothing. God has excelled in blessing us. Are we excelling in blessing others? But also, before we start talking about all the things that we have to do first, I want you to notice what it said in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 2. 
Beginning in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will. Basically what he's saying is, you look at Macedonia, you see our parking lot out here? They didn't have those kind of cars. You see these clothes that we have that we can buy at Dillard's and S&K and Men's Warehouse and all those other places? They didn't have these kind of clothes. It said the folks in Macedonia had their own poverty, but they gave grace above and beyond their means. That's excelling in grace. Paul says that we need to excel. We need to excel in faith. We need to excel in speech. We need to excel in knowledge. We need to excel in earnestness. We need to excel in love. And we need to excel in grace. How am I doing? How are you doing? Could Paul look at us if he was writing a letter and say, as you excel in these things, excel in this one too. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 29 in the New King James says, Do you see a man who excels? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. When we excel, we will stand before the king. And he will say, enter in, good and faithful servant. We can do this. It's a growth process. But remember what Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can excel. Even if we haven't, we can do it. Are you ready to excel?